I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. Today's case is Rachel McLean, but we're going to go backwards before we go forwards. Okay. In 2018, John Mark Tanner was jailed in New Zealand for abusing his girlfriend a number of times over a six-month period. Sentenced to two and a half years for the offences, which included, quote, using his hands to restrict her breathing, end quote, the parole board said that Tanner, who was aged 49 at the time, and lived in Wanganui, which we had to look up to find out how to pronounce. That was excellent pronunciation, Thank I have very to say. Much. <laughs> I'm very pleased with myself. <laughs> I'm so proud. Uh, had yet to address the factors which led to his violence against intimate partners. The reason for his attack on his girlfriend of nine months? She had the audacity to tell him that she was breaking up with him. How dare she? I know, right? His response was to tell her that he was going to kill her, followed by the attack which saw him up in court. It wasn't the first time in their short relationship that he had been physically abusive. Twice before, Tanner had hit and punched her before the night that he was arrested and charged. Bizarrely, his girlfriend chose to stand by him and had been reluctant to see Tanner prosecuted on some of the charges. Is it wrong to say at this stage that he must have beaten the sense out of her? I think in an abusive relationship you just become inured to the violence, don't you? It's just so frustrating. I know. Yes. You may be asking yourself why we've stepped away from the UK for the first time this series and why we're talking about a case that's over 11,000 miles away. That will become apparent soon, so we'll come back to that. For now, let's head back to the UK to look at the case of Rachel McLean. Rachel Margaret McLean was born in Blackpool, a town in the northwest of the UK most famous for its Eiffel-esque tower. Rachel's mother Joan was head of foreign language at Hodgson High School in Portham Le Field and her father, Malcolm, was a British aerospace engineer. Raised in Carlton, roughly three miles north of Blackpool, Rachel had two younger brothers, David and Peter. She had attended Blackpool Sixth Form College and was in her second year as an English language student at St Hilda's College in Oxford when she went missing on the evening of the 14th of April 1991. That evening, the 19-year-old student was scheduled to meet her boyfriend at the train station in Oxford at 6pm. Finding out that the train had been delayed, she returned home to wait for him instead. An hour and a half later, her boyfriend, described by his own friends as a sociable and charismatic person, arrived at the house at 25 Argyle Street by taxi. The man, John Tanner, aged 22, was a classic student at the University of Nottingham and also an avid Nottingham Forest fan, which is odd as he was born and raised in New Zealand. I suppose it's part of being a student to fit in with everyone else that you adopt the local football team. Yeah. Rachel had met him on her 19th birthday in Blackpool, where he was working part-time as a barman. The following day was FA Cup semi-final day, and Nottingham Forest were on TV playing, and I didn't even have to look this up because I'm a West Ham fan and I remember it, (laughs) West Ham in a match that was a big deal for both teams. And just as I go on a side rant, West Ham had a man sent off incorrectly by the referee, Keith Hackett, they end up losing 4-0 to a rampant forest side 
in a match that any West Ham fan over the age of 40 will be able to tell you about. Such was the sense of injustice of it all. And it's also very memorable for West Ham fans singing loudly throughout the whole ordeal, even though they were being absolutely spanked. As usual. Enough football talk. <laughs> John had plans to watch the match on TV on the Saturday afternoon while Rachel chose to study in the same room. At around 4.30pm, after the game had finished, neighbours remember seeing the couple outside the house. The following day, John returned to Nottingham on the 5pm bus, bound for Oxford Railway Station. He was due to catch the 6.30pm train to Nottingham, and as he waited, he wrote out a love letter to his girlfriend, which he later posted to her Argyle Street address. In the letter, he noted how lucky it was that Rachel had bumped into a long-haired friend of hers who offered her a lift as they were saying goodbye. Oh, young love. These days, you just send a selfie and some kind of acronym in WhatsApp that I wouldn't understand because I'm too old. I miss that whole letter-writing thing, though. We came across a load of your letters, didn't we? You were a prolific letter-writer in your I youth. I was extremely prolific. I had absolutely tons and tons of letters in the loft, which is still up there. Yeah. Yes. yes. We're trying to do a clear-out and they're still up there. <laughs> Some things cannot be thrown away. I'll give you that. On the 16th of April, John called Rachel on her home phone, but there was no answer. Undeterred, he tried again the following evening, where the call was answered by her 20-year-old housemate, Victoria Clare, who said that she didn't know where Rachel was. John's love letter arrived a couple of days later, on the 18th of April, and Tanner once again called the house, asking for Rachel that evening, but again without luck. It had now been a full five days since Rachel had last been seen, and her friends were starting to wonder where she was. She had been due to meet her tutor that morning, the 19th of April, to discuss the upcoming term, and then to sit a pre-term exam at St Hilda's in the afternoon. A phone call to Rachel's family in Lancashire confirmed that she had been left in Oxford the previous weekend, and they had not seen her since. It was only then that college authorities notified police about Rachel's disappearance. Now, what I don't understand about this is why it took five days, but also the college to notify police, why no one else has done it. Do you think that's because everyone in Oxford thought she was on her way back to... Oh, Um, no, no, because she was staying there, wasn't she? She was staying there, so she'd obviously been home for, like, a weekend Mm. to see her family, being dropped back again at university. After that, her family probably wouldn't see her for a few weeks, maybe even a month. Um, And her friends hadn't seen her. Um, I think as well, though, that, you know, 1991, the... People didn't have mobile phones. It wasn't uncommon to go days without seeing people, yeah. was it? And if, you, if someone just doesn't happen to see you, so you phone them and go, oh, no, I haven't seen her, she's not around. It could be that you've just missed people. They might be out elsewhere. I used to go off and stay at friends' houses and stuff when I was a student, and you weren't always where you were expected to be, and there was That's no true. way of checking up. That's true. Oxford Police received dozens of reports of missing students every month, so their initial reaction was fairly low-key. Rachel's description was circulated amongst the local police force. Five foot six inches tall, slim, fresh complexion, shoulder length ginger auburn hair and brown eyes. The case was taken over by the Criminal Investigation Department and on the 21st of April, an initial search of Rachel's house was made by detectives. They determined there was nothing to suggest she'd come to any harm at the house. An examination of the floorboards was carried out and this showed they had not been tampered with. Do you know what? I didn't know they could tell where the floorboards were tampered with. No, I didn't either. I don't know what you would look at. Maybe scratches or something? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, maybe where someone's pried up a floorboard yeah. or the nails are loose or something. Yeah, odd. The things you learn. On the 22nd of April, amidst growing concern for the student, police made her disappearance public knowledge. 
Her boyfriend spoke from his home in Lenton, Nottinghamshire, and described how he'd given Rachel a goodbye kiss on Platform 2 of Oxford Railway Station. He also revealed that the couple had been joined by a long-haired man as they drank coffee in the station concourse. He stated that the stranger seemed to know Rachel well and offered her a lift home. I have to say as well that this was way before the days of CCTV. So yep. nowadays you go, hang on a minute, you're I'll at Platform that. 2. Yep. Yes, you were. <laughs> yeah. Two days later, on the 24th of April, Rachel's parents, Joan and Malcolm, took part in a press conference appealing for help in finding their daughter. By now, police had suspicions that John Tanner was involved in Rachel's disappearance. By 28th of April, police were convinced that Rachel was dead and they ordered examinations of the sewers and cesspits around the area of Argyle Street to be carried out by search teams. The following day, police were surprised when John Tanner agreed to take part in a reconstruction of Rachel's final movements, as well as a press conference. They briefed journalists at the press conference to pose questions to him that they felt unable to ask him directly themselves without raising his suspicions, and this would ultimately reinforce their view. That really surprised me. Yeah. I had no idea. Now, I don't know if this is something that's common and whether they do this all the time or whether this was a real rarity, Mm. but I had no idea that the police would work with journalists. You tend to think of the police not trusting journalists. You you would think they wouldn't want to give the journalists too much information because journalists are there to reveal the news and to spill the beans on people. I found it absolutely fascinating, that bit, that that they would do that. And also, how cunning. Yeah. Because you you would probably let your guard down slightly with different people, isn't it? I would imagine that if you're talking to police... You'd be quite guarded, but I mean, you'd think with journalists you would be as well. But I suppose it's just it's less of an authority figure. The thing is, we've seen it in Big Brother, haven't we? As soon as uh, people forget cameras are there and mm. they start acting differently. Yes. Coming across as a distressed boyfriend, desperate to find Rachel, body language experts revealed how Tanner was unconsciously signalling his deception, pointing out a shake of his head, which they claim indicated he knew she was dead. Colin Sutton an ex-senior investigating officer for the Met Police, explained to the Daily Mail how Tanner was almost cocky when he came to face the press, saying, quote, He was almost making jokes while he was there. He was smiling and smirking. I think, taken as a whole, his behaviour was just too confident. PC Helen Kay played Rachel's role in the hour-long reconstruction as John posed in the station cafe, walked along the platform and re-enacted the couple's final embrace and kiss before he boarded the train. Pressed by reporters, John Tanner stated, quote, I did not kill her. I don't know what happened to her. In my heart of hearts, I know she is still alive. End quote. Body language expert Cliff Lansley analysed the footage and stated, quote, He's going to describe her personality, and he's closed his eyes. When you see an eye closure and you hear a positive statement, it almost cancels that statement out. It's a distancing technique that when we're saying something unpleasant, one way of managing and handling that is to remove ourselves away from it, either physically, with a low volume, or by closing the eyes. Here, we see the eye closure. End quote. I mean, they do say that if you're remembering something, you look... It's upwards, isn't it? It's it's either right or left. Is it, oh, I thought it was upwards, because you kind of go... I'm, I'm, I'm looking right, it's oh. right. If you look right, it's because you're remembering it. I think if you look left, it's because you're trying to create something, make something up. We're now both looking around. <laughs> Just looking around the room everywhere now. Yeah. Um, but th- there is, th- there's definite things, aren't there? There are definite tells mm. that you're, you're fibbing. As we were going through the attic stuff earlier, there was a book in there about body language. I know, right? I've kept it. I know you have. <laughs> 
I find it fascinating that the um, the things that you can reveal just from your posture. Me too. It's like when someone likes you and they touch their hair or their feet are pointing towards you and stuff like that. Or, here's a nice handy hint for you. If you're having a drink with someone who you really fancy, put your glass down close to their glass. Yeah. If they then pick up their drink and have a drink of it and put it down away from your glass, they're not that interested. But if they put it back down close to your glass again, supposedly they are actually quite interested in you. Oh. Or, if it's your mum... She's putting her glass down close to yours because yours has got more drink in it and she's going to steal yours. <laughs> that is my mum. <laughs> I love your mum's a bit, but she will admit that herself. <laughs> she will. <laughs> yeah, she's not an alcoholic at all. She just um, she just always goes for the fullest glass. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to go for a glass, you might as well go for the fullest one. <laughs> one of the most telling moments is when Tanner unconsciously shakes his head while talking about Rachel's future. Cliff Lansley goes on to say, quote, He's saying she's got everything to go forward for her. Now she's dead. That's not the case. And he gives that away with a little head shake. No. So while he's saying she's got everything to live for and everything to go forward for, his body is saying this is all wrong. It's lies. It wasn't Tanner's body language that gave police their breakthrough, though. Two independent witnesses saw the reconstruction and came forward to tell police that they had seen John Tanner at the station, but that he had been alone and not with Rachel or a long-haired stranger, as he had claimed. Despite initially appearing to be happy in a long-distance relationship, it was revealed that Rachel's feelings were fading as the months wore on. John Tanner was said to be possessive and was growing increasingly suspicious of what Rachel was doing when he was not there. In early May, police liaised with Oxfordshire County Council and obtained details regarding the layout of houses in Argyle Street, especially about the basements. They were told that although there were no basements in the houses, an official had remembered the houses were underpinned. What this meant is that there were cavities under the floors. The next day, 2nd of May, a new search of Rachel's home was carried out. This time, sadly, just before 5.30pm, Rachel's body was found. The body had been hidden in an 8-inch high gap at the back of a cupboard crammed with household junk that was under the stairs. It was also covered in pieces of carpet, but thanks to the low spring temperatures, there was no decomposition. Within the hour, police arrested John Tanner at a pub in Nottingham. He initially refused to answer any questions. However, confronted with the evidence gathered by the police, Tanner broke down and admitted killing his girlfriend. Tanner revealed that he'd strangled Rachel before forcing her head face down and tying a ligature around the neck. He went on to say that he'd spent several hours looking for a hiding place for the body in the house. And after clearing out contents of the understairs cupboard, he dragged Rachel's body, clothed in ski pants and a t-shirt, from the adjacent bedroom, through the hall and into the space under the floor. He then crawled along under the hallway to hide the body under the floorboards of her bedroom. Tanner was charged with murder, to which he pleaded not guilty. He argued that he had strangled Rachel because of extreme provocation citing that she had accepted his marriage proposal and then later changed her mind. How oh, fucking dare she be allowed to change her mind? I know. Unbelievable. Mm. The trial lasted four days and Tanner said that Rachel had told him that she had been unfaithful and that she wanted to end the relationship. He told the court, quote, I flew at her in a rage and proceeded to put my hands around her neck. I think I must have lost control because I only have a vague recollection of the time that elapsed afterwards. 
I am bewildered why I've done such a terrible thing to a person I love dearly. End quote. The jury returned with a majority verdict, 10 to 2, finding him guilty, and he was given a life sentence. On the 12th of May, a memorial service was held for Rachel at the Church of St Mary the Virgin in Oxford, and this was attended by 400 family and friends. On the 29th of May, a funeral service was held at Poulton Methodist Church near Blackpool. Right, as for Tanner, how many years do you think he served for the murder? Any ideas? So for me, he got life, didn't he? So he did get life, but life is a very fluid concept in really is, British, isn't it? well, in all courts, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you'd think young girl like that, all of her life ahead of her, you'd hope sort of twenty-five years. Yeah, especially with the oh, it's not premeditation, is it? But certainly the the method around hiding the body. I think that's it because I, he says that he flew into a rage, mm. and he only has vague recollections of the time afterwards. I'm sorry, but you don't go around a house for hours looking for somewhere to hide a body in a mist of rage, do you? Yep. Because this was something that I was reading that was fascinating in a yep. book I've been reading called Talking with Psychopaths and Savages, which is by Christopher Berry D. And in there, they, he talks about um, the red mist descending. And he's talking specifically in the book about the Oscar Pistorius trial, saying that if he had, you know, if Oscar Pistorius had claimed that, you know, he saw red, red mist descended, the rage took him and he lashed out that sometimes juries are more sympathetic to that than to someone who's clearly thought about things because you know we all understand that whole thing of losing your temper to some yeah. extent not murder but <laughs> the losing of your temper but i think that it's, it's the fact that afterwards he was doing that you know if, if you did that and then instantly called an ambulance going oh my god we had a massive row i, I think i might have killed her or you know yeah. whatever yeah and it was all the 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 stuff that he did afterwards the hiding of the body hiding it in such a way that it was on the floorboards and... Yeah, and having to, he must have emptied that whole cupboard out, put the body in, reloaded the whole cupboard. And, you know, we've all got one of those cupboards in our house somewhere, haven't we? Where all the crap ends up. I can't imagine having to empty all that out, shove a body in and then reload it and yeah. not having had that red mist leave me at any point. You can't yeah. do all that in a rage. And then to catch a bus to the station, write a love letter to your girlfriend... Even worse, there's no way that he was still in a rage at that point. That yeah. is a definite, I'm covering my tracks... So what did you say, 25 years? 25 years, I would hope. In 2003, after serving just over 11 years of his life sentence, Tanner was released from jail and returned to live in Wanganui, New Zealand. 11 years. It's not enough, is it? It's not, is it? 15 years later, and we return to the start of this story. 26 years after murdering Rachel McLean, and more than 11,000 miles away, John Tanner was charged with assaulting his girlfriend who, like Rachel, had told Tanner that she was breaking up with him. I hope, for the sake of women everywhere, that we never have to revisit this case and update it with more offences in future years. And that was the case of the murder of Rachel McLean. So I'm wondering, a man like John Tanner who's being convicted of murder of one young woman and then an attempted murder of a second one, or at least an assault of a second one, can he be expected to ever change? Good question. Do you think that 11 years is enough for killing a life? Absolutely not. Especially not when you see that he hasn't been rehabilitated, yeah. clearly. 
I just, I just can't believe how little time he served. He would have been in his, what, early to mid-30s when he was released? And also, how many other women has he beaten in a relationship who haven't reported it? Yeah. Because this type of crime, quite often, if it if it doesn't result in death, it never gets mentioned. Yeah. There's millions of people this happens to and they don't say a word. So what are your thoughts? Was the sentence long enough? Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com And me, Elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.